Their names were Kurt and Jan. They met when they were in high school. They were juniors in high school when they first met. Jan and her family had just moved into Fort Wayne, Indiana, a brand new city, a brand new school, and she was the new girl on the block. Kurt and his family was, had been born and raised in the same uh, city in Fort Wayne, and, and Kurt noticed this cute new girl who had arrived in school. And he thought to himself, I have to figure out a way to meet her. And so he thought one good way to meet her and have conversation is if I borrow some money from her, then she's going to have to keep coming back to me. And so Kurt one day got up the courage and he tapped on her shoulder and he said, uh, can I borrow 50 cents? And you might say that the rest is history. Kurt and Jan began to be friends and uh, began to date. And it wasn't long before they were falling head over heels in love, high school sweethearts. There was a problem, though, in their relationship because uh, Kurt and Jan were from different sides of the tracks. Uh, Kurt's family was poor and rough. There were five boys and no girls in his home, and it was a tough family. The boys would always, they were known for being fighters. They would start fights at school. Um, Kurt's father was an alcoholic and a womanizer, and Kurt remembers times where his, he and his brothers would have to defend their mother against their father when he came home in a drunken rage. It was a really, really rough home. Jan's family moving into town was quite the opposite. They were middle class. Everybody uh, uh, thought well of them. They were hardworking. They gave back to society. Uh, they went to church every single week at a large denominational church that you would know the name of it. And, uh, but inside their home, there was no real faith. It, it was, uh, there was bitterness and difficulty, and, and there wasn't truly a family walking with Jesus, uh, but it looked good on the outside. And so the school began to notice that Jan was hanging around with Kurt, and this wasn't a good thing. And so even the principal one day came to Jan, pulled her aside, and said, you know what? You need to be hanging out with other guys. Kurt is not the kind of guy for you. You belong with these other guys. Well, Jan was 17 years old at the time, and, and you know how that goes. It was like the more she heard that, the more she wanted to be with Kurt. And so they continued to date, and, and Jan's family began to know how much, how, how much they were falling in love, and they tried to slow down this fast train that was going out of control but they couldn't slow it down. Jan was a, in her second semester of her first year in that place, her junior year, when she realized she was pregnant. She told her parents, and her parents were horrified. They said to her, what in the world are we going to tell our church? We are so ashamed. We don't know what to do. And they made a really strategic family decision that day. And they told Jan, don't you tell anyone that you're pregnant. And they took Jan and they sent her away out of their house from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Toledo, Ohio, about an hour, hour and a half away, and 
put her in an unwed mother's home. One of these homes that was created so that women who were not married but pregnant would live in this house. And she was tutored for nine months with school, never counseled about what she was going through, but there she had a little baby girl and she held her for five minutes and gave her up for adoption. She came back to her senior year of high school, which had already begun. Nobody in the school, nobody in their home knew. In fact, Jan's three brothers and sisters never knew she was pregnant. They had told everybody that she was going to an aunt's house in California, and she continued to lie when she got back and told about stories of California. Uh, when she continued into that senior year, she continued to date Kurt, and uh, they were in love, and everything was fun and exciting, and they continued to be in love. When graduation came, uh, Kurt's family didn't have any money. There was no college for him, and they said, you need to get to work, and so he started right away into a job. But Jan's family, who had some money, they said, we want you to get an education. We want you to go off to college, and they sent her away against her will. She said, I want to be married and have a family. They said, no, you're getting an education, and she went off to Ball State University, um, during her freshman year in college, Kurt would go up on the weekends to see her. Uh, he wanted to be around her. He was in love. And he would go to see her on the weekends. And Jan began to think. She thought, I'm 18 years old now. I'm an adult. I should be able to do whatever I want to do since I'm an adult. And so Jan, in her 18-year-old mind, thought, if I get pregnant again they'll let me marry him. And so this time, in her freshman year, Jan got pregnant on purpose. She called her parents and she said, I'm pregnant again. And they said, well, this time you need to come home from college and you need to get married. And so it was exactly what she wanted. She dropped out of school, came home uh, to Fort Wayne, Indiana. They had a really fast wedding so that no one would see that she was pregnant uh, before they were married. And six months after their wedding, they had their second child, the first one that they kept, a little boy that they named Kurt after his father. Uh, early in their marriage, it was difficult from the very beginning. They were uh, struggling uh, in every way. There was bitterness. There was difficulty. There was a little girl somewhere out there that they didn't know, and they knew it was theirs. And uh, it was just a very challenging beginning days of their marriage. Uh, Kurt began to do exactly what he had seen his father do. Uh, I would say he was discipled by his father, although his father was not a Christian. He learned what it meant to be a man from his dad. And he just copied what he saw his dad doing, which was work a lot of hours, drink a lot of beer, and not be faithful to your wife. And he began to do just what he had seen his dad do. Along that way, Jan realized that she was pregnant again, and she carried their third child for nine months had a second little boy, and they named him Scott. This is my family. When I was born into this family, their marriage, my mom and dad's marriage, was completely falling apart. Uh, the day that my mom found out my dad was having an affair, I was six months old, and my mom took my brother and I and put us in a car and loaded as much stuff from the house 
that she could get in the car because she was leaving. It was over. And she took my brother and I and drove out of South Bend, Indiana, where I was born, and headed back to Fort Wayne, Indiana, to live in the basement of her parents' house. And on her way out of town, she was crying as she was driving, and she didn't want to wreck her car. And so she saw a church. It was a Wesleyan church. And she didn't know anything about the Wesleyan church, but she had heard John Wesley's name before. And so she thought, well, that's good enough. I'm going to pull in. And she pulled into this Wesleyan church in the parking lot in the middle of the week and just sat in the car to cry. A woman came out of the church and noticed that there was a woman in a car crying with two kids. And this woman, for some reason, got the courage enough to come across the parking lot, instead of just getting in her car and leaving, she came across the parking lot and she knocked on the door of the window and my mom rolled down the window and she told somebody the story that I just told you for the very first time. It was the first time she ever told anybody to a complete stranger. That woman said, you know what? I want to take you inside to the church. Uh, our pastor's in there and I'd like for him to talk to you. And on that morning, my mom knelt down in that pastor's office and prayed and repented of her sins and put her trust in Jesus as her savior and was radically transformed in that moment. I had a brand new mom. I was six months old and I had a brand new mom. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord. She took my brother and I and headed down to Fort Wayne, just like she had planned, and we moved into the basement of her parents' house. Uh, my dad, who was now living with this other girl, uh, didn't want to lose his two sons to divorce like he had lost his daughter to uh, adoption. And so he would come on the weekends to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he would see my brother and I and play with us. Um, what he found when he was coming was that my mom was changing. She was like a different person. The things that used to send her off in a anger and, and words, uh, now she would hold it. And she was uh, firm and strong, but she was gentle, like everything was changing. And he began to be even interested in what was going on in her life. Well, along this way, my grandfather, my dad's father that I just told you about, in one day had a massive heart attack without any notice and was gone from the face of this earth. My dad and his four brothers were devastated. They didn't have any chance to reconcile with their dad for all the stuff that had happened in their life, and now he's gone. And my dad called my mom and said, Jan, I don't deserve what I'm going to ask you. But would you please come alongside me during this funeral and help me through it? Because I don't think I can make it through. And somehow my mom found the courage in her new relationship with Jesus to come alongside my dad. And she walked with him and cared for him through the funeral. My dad says that he would turn and look at her through the funeral time and, and he would say, what how could she be so kind to me when I've been so bad to her? My dad returned to South Bend and my mom to Fort Wayne with my brother and I after the funeral. And my dad received a phone call from Kmart Corporation where he worked. And they said, we're going to move you to either uh, Kansas City, Missouri or Denver, Colorado. It's your choice. Where would you like to live? My dad loves baseball. 
And Kansas City had a baseball team, the Royals at the time. Denver, Colorado did not at that time. And so my dad said, we're going to Kansas City. I'm going to Kansas City. And they said, okay, be there in a week. And my dad called my mom and said, Jan, would you give me another chance? Uh, would you move with me, with the kids, and let's try to make our marriage work. Let's try one more time. And my mom said, if you promise that when we get to church, uh, when we get to Kansas City, that we'll go to church, I'll go with you. And my dad said, I promise, we'll go to church. So we all moved out to Kansas City. My mom, a brand new Christian, and my dad still lost in his sins. And we arrived. We hadn't been there uh, a full week yet, and there came a knock at the door of our house. Uh, my mom and dad opened the door, and there was this young couple that was there. They had come across the street. They lived across the street. And Mike, uh, the guy in the couple, uh, was a seminary student at Nazarene Theological Seminary across town. <clears throat> and uh, Mike was doing a homework assignment. He had been given a homework assignment in an evangelism class by a professor named Dr. Chick Shaver. And this homework assignment was to go and actually do something about evangelism, like share your faith with somebody. And most of the students didn't like those kind of assignments, but Mike didn't want to uh, fail his class, so he did it. He came across the street. The class assignment said, ask five neighbors these five questions and then write about their responses and how it went. Well, Mike, when he knocked on our door, not knowing anything of the story that I just told you, just brand new neighbors were in town, uh, he goes through his five questions. And the last one is, if you don't have a church home, would you be willing to come visit ours? My mom looked at my dad and she said, you promised. And he said, okay, we'll go to church. So they show up at Shawnee Mission, Church of the Nazarene, for the very first Sunday. First time my dad was in church, besides funerals and weddings. And they come to church, and they sit about two-thirds of the way back, and uh, the preacher begins to preach. He was a traveling evangelist. It was his only time there. Uh, his name was Paul Martin. And Paul Martin began to preach, and my dad began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on his life. He began to know that he needed God for the first time. And as this pastor preached, uh, as he concluded, he said, everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. And he said, if you feel like God is speaking to you, I'm going to ask that you raise your hand. And my dad, about two-thirds of the way back, slowly raised up his hands as he started to cry. And the pastor said, put your hands down and look up. And he said, if you, raise, if you raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to boldly step out of your pew and walk down the aisle and kneel at one of these wooden benches because we want to pray with you. And everybody was standing and my dad, with tears in his eyes, just stood there. He didn't move. And Paul Martin somehow got courageous and he walked down the, the platform and he walked down the center aisle right to my dad and he said, young man, come up here. And my dad and my mom came down the aisle to the altar. Mike and Linda Couch, who had invited them to come to church, were horrified that this traveling preacher had just called them out in front of everybody and they were going to hate them now, their new neighbors. But my dad came forward, knelt at the altar, repented of his sins, and put his trust in Jesus, and his life was transformed. I was nine months old. I had a brand new dad. Praise the Lord.
Amen. Thank the Lord. Uh, I don't know what caused uh, a young lady coming out of a church to notice a woman crying in the car and to be willing to courageously go across that parking lot and knock on the window of the car instead of just getting in her car and leaving. I would say it was probably the call of God in her heart and she said, yes, I'm going to do it. I don't know what that, what's behind that, but I'm going to check. Uh, what, what was it that caused a student, besides a homework assignment, to have the courage to come over and knock on a door and go through questions and, and invite people to come to church? Uh, I, I can only imagine that this was God's calling on their life. My dad and mom uh, did not have any clue what it was to be Christian people. And so they began to watch everybody in the church because this was so new to them. Uh, my dad particularly had no idea how to be a godly husband and a godly father. And so he began to come to church and he would sit toward the back and this was his plan. This is what he told me. He said, I would just watch the men in the church. And I would try to just copy what they did. And so he would watch you. And I'm looking around at the men in this church. He would just watch what you did. So he would notice that that guy seemed to have a good relationship with his wife. And when he would put his arm around his wife in church, my dad would just put his arm around my mom. <laughs> just copy or copy exactly what he saw. My dad never remembers his father ever hugging him not one time, or telling him he loved him. But he would watch you. And he noticed that some of you would get down on your knee after church and your kids would come running down the aisle and you'd put your arms out like this and you'd wrap them up in your arms and you'd say, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And while my dad never experienced that, I grew up with a dad who copied you and did what he saw you doing. We call all of these things disciple-making, it sometimes happens in a, a Sunday school class where people are instructing you to understand what the scriptures uh, teach, but it also happens sometimes when you don't even notice it, uh, when people are just copying you. Mike Couch loved baseball like my dad did, and they would go out in the street in Kansas City, Kansas, every evening after work, and they would play baseball throw a baseball back and forth, and Mike would just talk to my dad about Jesus. Just talk to him about Jesus. Sometimes discipleship happens really informally with a baseball in your hand. These are all pictures of people who heard the, God of, who heard the call of God on their heart and on their life and responded to say, I'm willing. Here I am. I'm willing. I'll be involved in that person's life. Even though it's a little scary, even though I don't know what is going to happen over there, I'm willing to be used of God, to be called, and to say, yes, I'll go. There's a story of another family uh, in the scriptures. It's a story of the family of people called Israelites. And that family of Israelites ended up in Egypt after a number of things that I'm not going to take time to go through that story there this morning. But for 400 years... The Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, were slaves in Egypt. 
And as they were there, uh, the Israelites uh, began to rapidly uh, reproduce. God had blessed them, and they were having many children, many, many children. And the Pharaoh of Egypt began to be concerned that this group would become too numerous, and they would ultimately overbattle, uh, overcome the Egyptians. And so he said, he gave orders that all of the males born to the women, the Israelite women, would be killed. And there was one Israelite family. They were Levites. And these Levites, mom and dad, decided that they were going to try to hide Moses, their baby. And they ended up taking Moses and putting him in a small little boat, if you will, and, and pushed him out onto the Nile River, hoping that he would survive. The Pharaoh's daughter saw this little baby and took the baby into her own home to be the mother of this baby. But she needed a mother to nurse the child, and so she reached out and she took Moses' mother to care for Moses. So Moses now had his, the best of both worlds. He had his own Israelite mom to teach him the ways of God. But he also lived in Pharaoh's palace. And he had all the blessings of that great country of the time and all the education that was there. Well, as Moses grew up, Moses uh, wasn't liking the way that the Egyptians were treating his people the Israelite people. And so at one point, he takes his own plan and he kills an Egyptian because he saw the Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. He flees the country and lives in another foreign land for a period of 40 years. He settles down there. He marries and even has a son in this foreign land. Moses is now 80 years old when our passage begins in Exodus chapter 3. And I want to read that to you. The scene is at Horeb, the mountain of God. And here it is, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the, and the God of Jacob. This, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites 
had reached me, and I have, have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I want you to know this morning that God knows your name. He knows who you are. Do you realize that God is the one who initiates relationship? Uh, you noticed in the passage that Moses is tending his flock, not intending to do anything on his own, uh, but God comes to Moses and he speaks to Moses and he calls him. He says, Moses, Moses. He knows his name. He knows who he is. He knows his history. In fact, I would even say that he knows his weaknesses and his challenges that Moses is about to express. I, I told you the story of my family. One more piece of the pie. My father, uh, on, when he was 18 years old, he used to drive uh, from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Antwerp, Ohio because you could buy alcohol in Antwerp, Ohio, in Ohio when you were 18, but not in Indiana. You had to be 21. So he would drive to get alcohol when he was 18. Um, every time he would drive this road, he would see a sign on the side of a building uh, there was a business, but a business owner must have been a Christian because he put large letters on the side, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you as well. And my dad would drive by this sign and he'd think, what in the world does that mean? Over and over again. When my dad went to Shawnee Mission Church of the Nazarene for the first time, he knew one Bible verse. It wasn't John 3.16. It was Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you as well. And when Paul Martin got up to preach, guess what he preached? Matthew 6.33, the one verse my dad knew. It's why my dad felt like Paul Martin had followed him around his whole life and was coming and preaching right at him. This was God who knew my dad. He knew everything about him. And he was seeking my dad, just like he was seeking Moses here. God knows your name. He knows everything about who you are. The one who calls you knows your weaknesses. He knows your challenges. He knows everything about you. Isaiah chapter 43 Verse 1 says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. 
you are mine. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The psalmist in Psalm 139 verse 4 says this, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 verse 30 says these words, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. But not only does God know who you are, I have good news for you today. God can be known by you. You can know him intimately. You can know him personally. He revealed his name to Moses. He revealed who he was, his character. Verse 6 says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 14, he reveals his name. He says, I am who I am. The name of, is, of God in, in, uh, in Hebrew is Yahweh. And that word Yahweh is actually a word that ultimately the root is the verb to be. So he said, I am who I am. I'm Yahweh. But that knowing God is not some kind of a chummy relationship. Uh, just kind of a, 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 like buddy, he's my buddy, the big guy upstairs, that kind of thing that we sometimes hear about. This isn't the kind of relationship that we're called to have with him. You notice that God says to Moses in verse five, don't come any closer. And he says, take off your sandals. And then in verse six, Moses hid his face from that God because he recognized who he was. He can be known by you. You can revere him. You can worship him. I love the picture that it gives of God being known by you. It says that I, in verse eight, it says, I came down, noticed the problem that was there, and I will bring them up. I came down and I will bring them up in verse 8. Uh, it's the picture of what God has done in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 tells a story that Jesus, who knew very well who he was and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, came down and became just like you and I as an individual, as a person, fully God but fully man on this earth, and he gave his life for us, taking the form of a servant even to the place on the cross. And then God raised him up from the dead. Again, God came down to raise us up. God knows your name, and you can know him. But I also want you to see that God's call on your life, as we look at the call of Moses, is for you to be willing to die. Uh, think about it with me for a second. Everything looked great for Moses in the vision that he was having with this fiery bush until verse 10, where it says, so now, God says to him, go, I am sending you back to Egypt to talk with Pharaoh According to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Moses was unaware that Pharaoh, the one who wanted to kill him, had already died. So for Moses, making the commitment to the father to go to Egypt was allowing, was laying his life down 
and being willing to die. Now, when I say that we're called, that God's call on our life is to be willing to die, we usually go to a place where we think we just are willing to die physically, to be done with our life. I'll die for you, God. But the picture here is really more of uh, being willing to live every day with your life surrendered, died to yourself, and willing to give your all to God. This is the picture of death. Uh, when we talk about a husband and wife, uh, yeah, some men might be willing to step in front of their wives and take a bullet for her, and that's good, good on you. But what this really is asking in marriage is that you would live your life dying to yourself for her your whole life. That's what a good marriage looks like, dying every day for her. Well, this is what our call is to God. Yes, God, I am willing to give up my life for what your purposes are in my life. I love the sign that God gave to Moses. He said, this will be a sign that I have sent you. When you bring the Israelites out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. It's a funny sign. It's a sign that comes after he obeys. A lot of times, uh, we want to uh, get a sign before we do anything. Give me a sign, God, and I'll obey you. But what this is calling Moses to do is obey him, and the sign will be found out once you obey. It's like the uh, priests who had to put their feet in the Jordan River before the waters went away and they could walk through. Uh, we say, God, give me a sign. God says, I want your faith. I want you to trust me. Moses wanted proof that he would be able to accomplish the task. He basically said, I'll serve you if all goes well for me. I'll serve you if you make, if you make me successful, where we might say similar things. But God says, your proof will come after you have completed the task. God calls us to be willing to die for him every day. But lastly, I want you to see that God's redemption is complete. Uh, you remember that it was Moses who brought the Israelites out of bondage. But Moses didn't take the Israelites into the promised land. It was the leader who came after him, Joshua. Joshua was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. Some have said that Moses and Joshua are like types of Jesus. They're like Jesus. Uh, Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Joseph took the Israelites into the promised land. Jesus does both. He brings us out of slavery from sin into the promised land, a covenant relationship with the Father. He does both, brings us out and takes us in. But I want you to understand that God rescues you from something to deliver you to something. He has a plan for your life. He just doesn't cleanse you so that you can sit there and look like a trophy on a, on a, on a table. He has a plan for your life to be lived out fully for him, completely surrendered to him for all he has for you, for a purpose, a God-divined, God-called purpose in your life. God rescues us from something 
and to something else. Out of Adam and into Christ. Out of sin and into righteousness. Out of darkness into light. Out of blindness into sight. Out of death into life. And out of a lack of purpose into being fully engaged with the purpose of God for your life. God knows you by name. God can be known by you. God calls, God's call in your life is for you to be willing to die every day for his purpose. And God's redemption in your life is complete. He pulls you out to give you a new purpose in life. Would you stand with me please as we come to the end of our service? This morning is the beginning of a series of messages about God's call on your life. And we want to provide an opportunity for you to say, like Moses said, here I am. Uh, right at the beginning of this journey, right at the beginning of, of these messages, that you would say, Lord God, I know that you know me and I know you. And I want you to know that I'm willing to die every day for you. I'll serve you with all my life. I'll be the one who will walk across the street when you call me to and knock on a neighbor's door. I'll be the one to see someone hurting and cross a parking lot and say, do you want to talk? I'll be the one who disciples a new believer and walks with that new believer into faith, full faith in Jesus. God, I'm willing to be the one to raise up leaders in the church, to see people become all that they're intended to be, to serve the Lord and to, to serve the church and the community. I'm willing to be one of those people who raise up leaders. And if you're here today and you say, yes, God, I am willing, I am ready, here I am. As we sing, we wanna invite you to step out of your pew boldly before other people as a testimony of God speaking to my heart and I'm willing. Maybe there's a ministry that you've been thinking he's calling you to and it's time to respond. You wanna say yes. Maybe there's somebody that he's told you to talk to and you haven't yet stepped out and today's the day. And you said, here I am, Lord, send me. And you can step out of your pew and come down and say, Jesus, I'm willing, I'm yours. If you would like to pray today, and make that commitment before the Lord and this church. We invite you to come as we sing today.